I want to do a quick uh, news bulletin before we begin. Uh, It's extremely hot outside. The weather is very bad. Uh, It's Sunday, 24 July, 2022 in Wilmington, Dell, and it's 106 Fahrenheit. It's 41C for our overseas listeners. Uh, Speaking of international friends and comrades, uh, many of you are also being boiled this summer. Um, Sorry. Um, You should go Google the water temperature in the Mediterranean. It's not great uh, for, like, sustainability of life. Um, But really, the two problems we're running into is, number one, we don't seem to have the political will or or sort of desire to sort of face, um, face facts. Um, because of a bunch of different sort of bureaucratic and political reasons. Um, but the other thing is we do a lot of talking about local campaigns and like election campaigns. And like we've bought into the idea that you got to knock doors. You got to meet the people in the neighborhood. You can't just meet the people who are establishment people because it's just, it's not the kind of politics that we do. And so to have everybody out knocking doors in this just decrepit weather, um, that's a, a big shout out to everybody. Uh, because I'm old, I'm not going out there. So I, I appreciate everything everybody's doing. Carl, how how are you guys holding up out there? So I mean, we were out yesterday, and there's obviously a lot of candidates out today. It's not as humid as it was a couple weeks ago. So honestly, it's honestly less bad than it was because I, the worst is when it's like upper ninety degree and like eighty percent humidity. Then it's like it's physically dangerous for just about anybody to go out right now. It's definitely dangerous for some people. Like if you have Medical conditions is definitely like, eh. But we were out for a few couple hours yesterday, and it wasn't too bad. You just got to stay hydrated is the main thing. Well, I hope one day all of this stuff sort of comes together in some fashion, and maybe we can start turning the ship around. It's going to be a while. I'll never see it, but then again, I'm old anyway. Comrades and friends, hello. Uh, this is Rob. We're in the shadow of Rockford Tower. We're behind enemy lines. We're in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast. We're in the Bunker Studio. This is your Highlands Bunker Podcast. Carl is with us here controlling everything. And uh, we have a, a great guest today. Uh, we have State Treasurer Colleen Davis. Uh, hello. Thank you for coming. Yeah. After doing an outside, you did an outside event today. Yep, yep. We're, we're out a lot. I mean, and uh, I think it was... You correct me, Carl, but I think it was 98 degrees, and uh, it was pretty nice. In the shade, it's nice. Yeah, nice little breeze. It wasn't wasn't too bad. I I will say I did not uh, consume any ice cream. I have a feeling it would have I would have worn more of it than I actually would have consumed. But um, <laughs> it is bad that you go to the event, but you don't get the you don't get the goods. <laughs> I know, I know. The president so would never allow that. He'd have to get the photo op with the thing. <laughs> So the way we start these um, is just give us some background, like a little bio, but but also, you know, um, you know, what were your influences and how did you kind of find your way first to Delaware and then um, to to public service and like electoral politics? Sure. Well, um, oh, gosh, there's a lot in that. Um, So try to keep it open. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll just say that uh, I, I grew up in Sussex County. Uh, my parents actually moved to Delaware uh, when I was a kid after um, some fraudulent activity essentially uh, 
cause their business to go belly up and uh, and they had to declare bankruptcy and they decided to move to Delaware. My grandparents and great grandmother uh, lived in Sussex and they said, you know, relocate down here, start start over again. Um, and the great thing about all of that is just that one, it brought me to Delaware as a young kid um, and and we truly um, lost everything, but uh, but but definitely did rebuild and we were part of a community that, sort of welcomed us open arms, um, didn't really ask a whole lot about, you know, where we'd come from or, or that kind of, you know, thing. And and we really and truly were um, part of a greater, wider community, accepted very quickly and and, uh, and flourished, I'd say. Um, and then what brought me into politics, you know, really it was probably more frustration and um, the desire to create greater uh, change. I, I went to school in Philadelphia, um, have a background in science and went on to become a physician assistant specializing in neurosurgery, um, covered the the level one trauma center here uh, in Wilmington. And my husband and I lived here for a number of years. And um, I wanted to kind of shift gears. There were there was a lot going on inside of healthcare. Um, one thing in particular was that no one seemed to be really succeeding, whether it be small businesses as you know small practices um, or people in general. You know we're trying to provide care and yet it's outrageously expensive. And so I started consulting, and. Um, and kind of got into, I went back to school as well and got into finance um, that route with the idea that uh, we could do this better. And throughout sort of my consulting um, endeavors was working with a lot of um, institutions across the U.S. and just became more and more frustrated and, and actually wanted to do something more about it and uh and that's what led me to pursue uh treasury so well before i get right to it now let's just get right to it sure what uh what specifically were the frustrations what were the pressure points in the in that in that system the healthcare system or some sliver of it that you can you know drill down to what what specifically didn't work or or what were the what were the the faults in it? Who was getting? Who was falling through the cracks? What was costing too much? What what was it that um, that piqued you like that to say you know what um, it, it can be done differently than this? I I would say there were several incidents, right? Uh, I mean, it's not like a oh wow this today was a rough day, so I'm going to do something different, right? It was it was yeah. These are systemic foundational things. The way the system, the way that the the, the, the for lack of a better word, bureaucracy, but the private, the private enterprise mm-hmm. of healthcare. This is what you're talking about, right? So you're talking about private hospitals, and you're talking about private insurance companies c- collaborating, in a sense, to deliver care to people. Is that fair? Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and essentially, what what I was seeing was uh, a number of um, physicians and other healthcare providers who were, you know truly breaking their necks to try to um, provide care to people. And um, and the return for that work has been 
narrow, more and more narrow as, as you do that work. And then the flip side is that the care is not as stellar as it should be. And people are walking away with these huge bills with no sense as they walk into an institution of what that's going to look like. And so what you end up, what ends up happening is a, uh, a pool of resource continues to sort of flow into very specific um, uh, sectors, I guess, or very specific pockets. And um, and again, I think the return isn't isn't always uh, what it should be. So, you know, so for example, um, one of the sort of defining moments to um, to my decision to pivot was uh, was after the um, Lancaster school shooting, where uh, little girls were lined up in the schoolyard and and shot point blank. Uh, in, in the cranium and uh, I was on call for that my uh, my second son I think he was maybe 10 months old at the time and so we were I was essentially um, leaving the OR in the midst of surgery going down to evaluate this patient um, like I said a young girl who, who'd come in and her family was walking into the hospital barefoot um, because that was their their practice. They, they didn't tend to wear shoes, and uh, which is very dangerous in a trauma room because things, yep, things are flying around. And uh, and you know their first response as we were sort of uh, doing an assessment and essentially declaring this little baby, you know, just this little girl, perfect little person, um, brain dead. Their response was, "Let's pray for the man who did this." And uh, and and that that sort of struck me, um, you know. Again, it's sort of one of those that, that sort of gut punch where you go, "Wow, these people are absolutely amazing. Their response is absolutely unbelievable." And yet, uh, all this effort that we put into saving lives and and changing lives in a positive way, um, we we just we continue to fail, and not because. We don't want the outcomes to be different, you know. Um, so, yeah. So it's a good example. So, yeah. Um, I mean that. <clears throat> I got to sit with that for a second. Uh, yeah. I mean that's a that's a pretty poignant story. I guess that story would say more about uh, what kind of kind of society we live in, uh, and what like what stuff we choose to regulate. And it's almost a story about not getting somebody. Uh, mental health help really um but the the other and, and i don't know if you can give an example or illustrate it in a way but you talked about sort of um you know the care gets worse but it's more expensive you know we we the the our the american outlay for service from this network of corporate hospitals and corporate insurance companies uh is astronomical it's high it's high, the highest in the world uh, and that the care we get by by data is not as good as it used to be. And it's not as good as other places in a lot of different areas. Uh, maternal health, um, all kinds of stuff we're very bad at. <clears throat> but I think the word you used was pockets. The, the, that money for less service is going to particular pockets that actually doesn't really enhance um, the quality of medical care people get. And I'm interested if you could elaborate on that concept. 
Yeah, well, so for example, um, in particular, primary care. And, and keep in mind that, you know, some of the work that I did, in fact, I never uh, did consulting work for any of the institutions in Delaware. And so I haven't really um, looked at their books with the same scrutiny. Um, but I can say that a lot of the small practices that I did work for, uh, pro bono for small um primary care practices in particular, I um, they could not keep up with the regulatory uh, requirements and yet at the same time uh, continued to make that attempt, hire additional staff just to, you know, file all the paperwork that's required, things like that. Um, and then their returns continued to drop. And primary care is one of the hubs where... Um, continuity of care really should be occurring. I had one uh, physician tell me uh, that he had, you know, a, a relatively young patient who he had gotten admitted through a lot of, you know, um, frustrating attempts, finally got this uh, young woman um, admitted to the hospital. And um, she ended up passing away while admitted and never got a call from the hospital or the or the attending physician that was caring for her, you know, in-house. And that's where I think there's a, there's a huge, you know, loss. Um, I'll just say that uh, as an example. Yeah, well, let's because yeah. you're talking about the, the, the regulatory piece. So we'll, we'll dig into that maybe. That piqued my interest. I mean, um, when, when, when you – are there particular – when I hear that, and, and again, this is a this is a bias. So you tell me. When I hear that, I think insurance company. Um, when some people hear that, they think uh, government bureaucrats. If you just cut red tape, you know, we can go, you know, all out on this. And so maybe you should clarify because again, because those two things mean two different, very different things to me and, and at least the audience here. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I'll just say that conceptually, the the concept is that you want to sort of you want to have Dr. Smith um, producing great outcomes in their patients. Right. And there are a variety of different ways to get that. And so essentially what we did several years ago was through CMS and uh, and insurance companies together, uh, Centers for Medicare and uh, uh, Medicaid essentially determine that if you're going to be considered a gold star physician, we expect these outcomes. And it's not only outcomes. Sometimes it means that you are prescribing a certain, you know, percentage of, um, you know, antihypertensives, or you're seeing your diabetic patients a certain number of times, those types of things. And, um, and so we have this whole algorithm for ensuring that we get good outcomes. That doesn't always produce these great outcomes, but um, physicians and small practices don't have the bandwidth to hire additional uh, staff to help support some of those newer regulatory um, requirements. And what ends up happening is insurance companies, whether it's a liability insurance or, uh, or whether it's um, coverage, start 
dropping those physicians that aren't sort of gold standard. And what that also means is for little communities uh, inside of you know, Wilmington, where there's a huge disparity, um, we have physicians that drop off and stop being able to provide care. And typically, you're talking multi-generational care, which is, uh, which is a huge uh, loss, because oftentimes they know, hey, you know, I, I know, uh, you know, Grandma Jane is, uh, is uh, struggling at home with her diabetes. Can, can you check in on her when they're seeing the, the, the next generation down or, you know, that type of thing? There's this continuity that ends up occurring because of that historical knowledge. And yet again, when those uh, practices aren't able to stay open and stay independent, uh, that's where we start to lose really, really uh, uh, longstanding quality of care. And that was probably one of my greatest concerns. I'm, I understand that. And the good news is that uh, the politicians that I prefer have a great answer for that. Um, you've probably, you're probably familiar with it. Uh, it's to make sure that these doctors, they don't have to, it doesn't have to be that way. They don't have to rely on that stuff. You know what I mean? We can cut out the, uh, some of the middlemen and ladies and and uh, and non-binary people who run like insurance companies, they can go, they can all go. Um, yeah, because we have to look at it not like a struggling business, but as a community service. It's actually one of the biggest. Com- I mean, other than maybe educating, which we also kind of like, we let that go too. But we don't have to do it that way. Like, I would go a step further. I don't think there are systemic knobs and switches. And you send a little more money there and pull this back and, you know, help this person. Um, The system doesn't work the way we do it. I think what you're describing is a complete civic failure to keep the to keep the people inside this country um, healthy uh, or, you know, to help them, whether they have an acute like injury or whether they just need long term health or. I think, like you said, GPs, like, if you don't have a general person you can go to to get checked out because your side hurts or your throat hurts um, or to get some things I'll need to be getting here, pushing 50, I have have a whole laundry list of things I need to get. (laughs) Um, Yeah, if you don't have that, um, that can't be, you can't rely on somebody, you can't rely on, like, you know, what an insur- if, if an insurance company is going to give them liability and, and malpractice insurance because of some. Like, that's not a way to run it. It's broken. I think you've recognized it's broken. And I think sort of what I said before about about anything, it just takes a, it takes that next step to say, yeah, if the system is broken, maybe, you know, turning up the volume or turning down the treble or turning up the gain, maybe if the stuff doesn't work, it doesn't work. It doesn't matter what Carl does with it. If the microphones didn't work, the show wouldn't go out. You got to change the mics. So... Um, before we get to the next piece and, and we get off of your background, I have to ask you this because I'm, I'm sure you saw my, I have a little kit over here, huge fan of the football from Europe all over. 
and I noticed that uh, you played center back in university. That's what your Wikipedia page says. <laughs> so give me the give me the story. I mean, were you like the center back who was like a bruiser? Were you like a a, a Baresi, like an Italian style, mm-hmm. or were you more like a, a Beckenbauer, free up and down? You know, directing traffic. What, yeah. what were you doing in the center back position? Well, I'll I'll actually start with my high school career because I I uh, played for two years on the boys team. We didn't have a girls team. Yeah, and it was my my first uh, my first time to to be a, a real activist. Um, at fifteen, I went before the the uh, school board and I said, you know, we need a girls team, and they they gave us one, which was which was great. So I ended up playing a total of five seasons of uh, high school soccer, uh, which was a lot of fun. And I played sweeper in high school. Um, and that's really where, uh, yeah, you sort of direct all the traffic. You, um, yeah, you got to be fast. I mean, I was the fastest on the team. Um, even in college, I think I was maybe the second fastest on our college team. And, um, yeah, I mean, you can. You're winning headers off of corners, clearing balls out, yelling I mean, at people. Get yeah. the hell out of here. All that stuff. <laughs> yeah. You can tell, though, I don't exactly win headers every time. I'm well, look, sometimes winning tall. headers isn't about being the tallest. <laughs> right. It's about wanting it more. <laughs> and I was neither the tallest nor did I want it more, so I didn't win any. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could place the ball pretty well, and I was loud um, at least, and and I could see the field and really loved it, really enjoyed it. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, that's my thing. So l- the last sort of thing uh, in your in your bio that was really interesting to me because I felt like it tied into um, what we were talking about, about like systemic sort of foundational issues get your then we'll move into treasury stuff so when your family's business failed there was a system in place by which you could go to a new place with more family support um, and ties to that community um, ties to you know the schools and ties to the people who hire people and all of that and people who were in your family. And so um, you guys were able to sort of like just rebuild everything and, you know, move on. I think that we all together, everybody inside the country, could do that for everybody. And if your business failed um, in Baltimore or Indianapolis or in Texas or in California, it didn't matter if you had strong family support an hour away or two hours away or eight hours away or nowhere that you still have health care, you still have food, you still have housing, you still have schools, all of it. And it was just interesting as you're telling the story because I'm like, that's exactly what my politics are, except you don't need to have the, the, the other family that you can go to because everybody deserves to be treated like to get start over if something, if something happens and have that support. So anyway, I, I, maybe you can just comment on sort of the broader feeling you have about that because that was your, part of your story because I found it very profound. And uh, yeah, and then we'll just maybe get into some, some other technical stuff. Well, I will say that I'm simplifying several years of struggle. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so that's and, and, sure. and let me just say, in case, <laughs> in case that came across as um, some sort of, no. like, I, I don't think that that's, like, it was easy or something. I absolutely do not. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's, I mean, even you telling the story, you can tell that it was a, a traumatic experience to go through, especially as a kid, when you don't know, like, you're not really in control of it at all. Uh, you're just being told, we're moving. 
Um, so, yeah, I, I want to make very clear that part I appreciate greatly. I, I, I guess what I mean is just the ability to see, to be able to go somewhere and have a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think also Sussex County is a really beautiful area. So there there was certainly a, a light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> it but, is. Um, <laughs> it is. But, but even with having a family, having, you know, my grandparents close by, um, you know, that that really was just a bit of um, camaraderie, I would say, maybe, uh, and and that feeling of um, familiarity that maybe we needed. But other than that, it really and truly was, and I and I believe this to be true of of everywhere in Delaware. There's a certain amount of um, humanity that's among the people in our communities because. There were a lot of kids who were transient, who sort of came in. I remember, you know, growing up, I'd know them for two years. They'd say, yeah, my parents got a divorce and my my mom or my dad has relocated us here. Or they'd say, yeah, my parents lost their job and we're in some, some family member's beach house for, you know, six months. I And that was very, very common. And I think that um, there were a lot of people that locally were resentful of that but for the most part by and large the entire community sort of became um almost like i imagine uh people are in the military who have that transient sort of i mean that's the first thing i thought of too because being you know in delaware everything's close so there Mm -hmm. are especially in kent and sussex a lot of military families Mm -hmm. that um either some of them stayed or they're just coming through or you know whatever um because of that because of the Air Force. Yeah. And and because of that, I think that a lot of people um, uh, have developed this sort of, um, you know, common thread of, of, of humanity, you know, I and. Yeah, yeah, I'll tell you, I mean, I think I think in some communities it's there. I think in some communities it isn't. And I certainly don't want people to like just get gloom and despondent. But I think for some people. Uh, you'd be surprised how many people don't have it. Mm-hmm. Or or you would be surprised how many people don't have it for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be a certain kind of person or do a certain thing because I don't think people, a lot of people in my neighborhood have it for um, the guy who lives in the bus stop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think people have it for you know people they see on the street that might be suffering mental illness or drug addiction. Mm-hmm. I don't think that they have it for just generally any any homeless person or someone on the street rough sleeping. Uh, I think people, you know, again, when you know somebody who has a beach house you can crash at, it helps. <laughs> right. Yeah, I for sure. I put it that way. Well, and and I'll I'll say this, like I'll I'll just maybe add to that too. I I uh, a few years ago, my my boys are um, older now, but we um, they were playing soccer, little little league peewee soccer, and uh, I was standing on the sidelines, you know, rooting the kids on. And a little girl, she was probably about three years old, maybe four, came over to me and said hello. And we were standing there just talking, and uh, and her parents were close by, and so were her grandparents. And she said, I, I haven't seen my daddy in years. My daddy just came home. And I said, oh, that's wonderful. I'm so excited for you. That's That's great. And uh, she said, he was in jail. And I said, well, I'm so glad your daddy is home. I'm so glad your daddy's home. 
And, you know, one of the family members sort of marched her off over to a corner and she came back with tears in her eyes. And, you know, and I said, I'm grateful that your daddy is home. And and I'm and I said it loud enough so the adults could kind of hear because um, I think that you're absolutely right. There is a stigma. A lot of people become fearful and all of the sort of subpopulations that you're describing are uh, folks that that people very quickly are fearful of. And if we don't uh, just approach really people with love, you you will remain fearful. Um, and there's a certain amount of compassion that that I think we all can have for uh, for 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 anyone. And and if you're not willing to tap into that, I just I think that um, you're right. Uh, but but it's a stigma that I think can be overcome. Well, I hope so. Um, I'm trying. And that leads me to another thing I wanted to talk about, and I guess we'll talk about this first because I think it's a beautiful segue into it. Um, one of your roles uh, as the state treasurer, elected state treasurer, is uh, to sit on the board of pardons. And I don't know how this works. I'd like you to sort of tell me how it works. Um, just as a function, and uh, so I, because I, I, <clears throat> maybe you could also give me some stats, how many cases you review, how the cases come, uh, how often that you, you meet, whether there's an interview, all that stuff. I'm fascinated by it, because it's interesting, that's a place where, you told the story about somebody coming home from prison, um, that's a place where um, I think a lot of love isn't shown, or a lot of understanding or forgiveness, speaking of the uh, the Mennonites or the Amish folks that you met in the emergency room? Yeah. So, yeah, what's your, what, how does the Board of Pardons work? <laughs> what is your role in it? And what is your, what are your feelings about it? Yeah, okay, well, uh, so, so very quickly, the, the Board of Pardons is made up of uh, myself, the treasurer, the auditor, the lieutenant governor, secretary of state, and then the chancellor. Um, and so it's the five of us. And I think originally the concept was to ensure that we're sort of um, we sort of take a focus on all these different areas of uh, state government so that um, we're, we're offering people the opportunity to um, to sort of ask for that that final uh, forgiveness. Um, we see all kinds of cases. In fact, I remember this one uh, gentleman who came before the board and was like, yeah, I didn't know I was supposed to. I wasn't allowed to start a fire in the middle of you know june or whenever it was and and it was like i just want to get this off my record um and then you have other people who are involved in violent crime and um and they come before the board to say i i truly changed my life and i truly am, am seeking forgiveness um so it's a whole slew. And I will say that when I started, we, we had a huge backlog. I think it was like a four or six month backlog, maybe even more. And so we've uh, we've really, you know, tr been trying to sort of turn through those cases, those applications. So typically what happens is we will review the cases. Um, many of them will re review ahead of time and um and, and a lot can be done sort of administratively. So, for example, this this gentleman with the with the fire, uh, that's the kind of thing that is pretty easy to sort of look at his case, look at his history, and go, "This is yeah, come on, you know." So these are all these are all people who have served their full sentence or whatever their full sentence was meant to be, or are some of these people still serving some sort of sentence, whether it be in prison or on parole. 
Yes, some are commutations. Okay, yeah. Um, so it's the whole gamut. It's the whole gamut. Yep, yep. And, and this is a good qu- time. Just yeah. does the does the do the changes that were uh, passed about expungement? Is that just across the board? Are you guys involved in that at all, or is that just an administrative thing that can happen without the the official blessing of the board of pardons? Right. Yes. Is expungement is? is is separate and okay. can be done without going before the board gotcha, of pardons. Gotcha. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, and and for each and every individual, it's funny. I get stopped on the street on this one a lot, and I'll I'll say, look, I'm 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 not your attorney, uh, so so take take this with a grain of salt. But sometimes it makes more sense to go before the board of pardons, and sometimes it makes more sense to go for an expungement. It just depends on what you're trying to do. Um, but oftentimes, uh, you know, the biggest challenge that people have is. Like, look, I can't get housing or I can't get uh, a, a job um, with uh, with the uh, sort of mark on my record. Yeah. 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 I mean, we've talked about that. The housing is, is huge. Mm-hmm. Housing is huge. You can't huge. even be with some. you know, it's, yeah, I mean, we're just making people homeless or, 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 or insecure in where they live. Yeah. Um, sometimes they're part-time in their car. Yep. Part-time in maybe a, a SRO or something. It used to be maybe the Y. But yeah, I mean, I guess so. Before we, we can kind of wrap that up, what, what's what's usually what's the what's the load that you guys go through? I mean, do you do you execute these every quarter, uh, oh, or do you do them monthly? Uh, monthly. So you do them once a month. How many do you do a month? We usually get through sixty or so. 60 a month. Um, yeah, and it's it's sometimes closer to seventy. I, I will say that. Um, Lieutenant Governor Bethany Hall Long has done a really phenomenal job of helping us to kind of churn through those and and sort of pick up the pace. You know, she is like an energizer bunny. She's just absolutely unbelievable. So yeah, uh, I've seen her run up and down. We've seen it all. We've seen it. She has a she has a thing she's doing. I see it. And and again, game recognizes game. When you're doing a thing, you recognize other people doing a thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So and it's something that uh, yeah she's been. She's she's really taken on and and really been sort of the catalyst behind trying to get through the backlog. Um, even through the pandemic, we saw lots and lots of people. And are these yeah. processed pretty much um, pretty much as like unanimous? I mean, are there is there a mechanism to sort of say this is one we're going to do, and somebody says it's not one we're going to do, uh, or how how does that work? Yeah, um, so we we kind of go through the um, the cases and. Sometimes we will. So, for example, like I said, we'll we'll administratively say, "Yeah, this this person's fine. I'm 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 all for it." Or sometimes there there will be one person who says, "Well, I'd like to actually have them come before the board." So one person can can say, "I'd like to call them up." Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then you know, and then we hear the cases and just you know talk frankly often with uh, with the folks. It's it's very intimidating to come before a board like that. I would imagine it is. Yeah. So you often want people just to sort of feel comfortable, you know, as, as as comfortable as you can make them. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I just I, I think we take a very um, we take a very dim view of like just the Department of Corrections in this state as it is. Um, you know, a lot of my friend Lex Wilson has spilled a lot of ink uh, to talk about um, how people are treated both individually and how the system works. Um, so, 
you know, I, I, I'm glad that there's some mechanism to at least give people some, uh, some modicum of, of hope through that, because I, I don't think a lot of it, like you were talking about the, the, uh, healthcare system. I think that system is, um, just as dehumanizing, but but worse because they can't can't leave, uh, or they can't get housing, uh, they can't get a job, they can't get out of the training they need. Um, they're in a you know if they're if they're still in prison, they're in an extremely dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you know I'm I, I, I'm I'm glad to hear that that that, that work's being done. Um, I'm sure I wouldn't be happy if I knew all the details about it, but um, I'm glad I asked anyway. Yeah. And I mean, the 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 nice thing about it, too, is we start to get to learn uh, more and more what what companies are hiring people, even with a a background and and things like that, which is, you know, which is really phenomenal. And it's it's a huge resource to sort of slowly be tackling, because, again, I don't think um, I, I think that those types of economic opportunities are what become real game changers and give people the opportunity to kind of be part of a community, be part of a family and, um, and grow. Well, well, let's talk about that. First, let's talk about the, just the, tr- the position of treasurer before we get to sort of like some of the foundational stuff. Um, again, we talked a little before we turned the mics on. One of the things I took out of the McGinnis trial was just, you know, I got, I got a, a, a deep dive into the state bureaucracy. I learned about, um, you know, accounting. Uh, I learned about uh, that. What's the IT DTI? DTI. About DTI. Yeah. <laughs> I learned about this. I learned about that. I learned about POs and after the fact waivers and contracts and how all this stuff. I learned about casual seasonal employees and uh, the the uh, the report. What was the what was the fucking report? Lap. The lap report. You have a lap report for the treasury? I bet you do. No. What? What is it? A uh, lap of... report was a list of authorized personnel. So it would list everybody in the agency by like their whether they're <sighs> casual, seasonal. Oh, you got to get on your lap reports. <laughs> I'm sure somebody is. No, but in I, any in I any case, I, I'm going too far afield. Um, <laughs> so I got a deep dive into some of that, but I, I still on a financial side, I'm not like. I know OMB is there. I know Treasury is there. I know accounting is there. I know um, the woman who ran accounting, whose name I can't remember. I met her. She seemed very Jane. competent. It's Jane. Jane. Jane's I saw, a rock star. I saw her testify. She was very. She was like, I'm like, we, Bill and I walked out of the courtroom. We're like, you know, I'm glad she's running accounting. That's right. She's, she's fine. That's so right. So it gave me a great. And I and I mentioned this during the series that we did, that the the general impression I got of the state bureaucracy was good, was like professional bureaucracy. Um, but anyway, so if you could kind of fit the, your agency and and your folks into that sort of network, how does yeah. that, how, what are you guys doing sort of on a daily basis? Uh, so, so I oversee investments of about $10.5 billion for the state in a variety of different um, platforms across, uh, you know, across a variety of different platforms. So, so sometimes it's actually, and this is one of the things that I think is a challenge for, for some folks to, to grasp is that it's not all taxpayer dollars. So um, the general fund is about $6.5 billion. Um, we make short-term investments on that. 
to ensure that every dollar of tax that comes in uh, gets stretched. Um, and uh, and we do that in a way that's secure. So we're not tossing it into, you know, wild ventures. You're buying like NFTs. No, right. No, no NFTs. The state of Delaware no doesn't Bitcoin, own a lot of apes. No. There's no ape. Thank, well, that's, again, you know. again, this is good. Yeah, we don't yeah. want that. No, no, we don't. We don't, we don't want that. But at the same time, you know, like there's a, there's a space for that type of investment. Um, Is there? And, but but not <laughs> not when it comes to taxpayer dollars. I mean, that's debatable. But yes, not when it comes to to the, the, the people's money. Yeah. So um, and then there are other platforms where uh, I do investments for different endowments, um, things like that, and um, also invest deferred compensation of about. 39,000 Delaware employees, and um, we also handle the investments for the 529 education savings plans, and um, and a variety of sort of pockets in between. Um, so, so that's the delineation as far as I get a lot of people who go, ah, my tax rates are terrible, or I want to, you let know. Me, I mean, you probably can't do this politically, but uh, <laughs> everybody's tax rates are so low here, it's ridiculous. It's yes. just sick. Yep. Um, so if anybody listening to this says that your taxes are too high and you live in Delaware and you own a home in Delaware and you pay no sales tax, I got I got news for you. You're going to have to, you're going to have to use the big brain of yours and sort that out because <laughs> it's not true. Um, yeah, I mean, we had. Well, we. I'd like you to continue, and then we'll get into the other the other question I have about other revenue streams and um, your relationship with the with the Department of State and the Department of Corporations, things like that. Because I, I I wonder uh, if you have a. Are, are you familiar with? Let's get into it now. Who cares? Uh, so I interviewed uh, an academic and a guy who uh, edits the uh, the journal for the Chicago University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Guys, Hal Weitzman's a guy's name, and he wrote a long. He wrote a book about the corporate state of Delaware, the history of it, the Chancery Court, um, the, the 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 corporate let's um, call them corporate services that we provide. Um, you know, at a, at a at a at a pretty paltry rate for you know being able to do things in secret. Um, but I mean, that's a lot of money, and I'm guessing that this this kind of stuff is is sort of um, I mean, is it discussed on that level? Like what you're, like how that, how that enterprise or the franchise or the process is working, and just sort of pouring money into the treasury. We, I mean, I don't. So not so much. Like I, I will say that I don't have many conversations centered around that because on on my end, it's sort of the the channel by which the funds the funds are coming in. You're just from, operating the yeah, yeah 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 and and the. You know, the one thing when I when I do have folks who complain or, or you know, who are upset or, or maybe even truly feeling a hardship, um, I you know, I kind of point to uh, corporations as one of the ways in which it helps to balance uh, our revenues. There's a there's a lot of revenue. You're absolutely right that we get from uh, from corporations and corporate tax. And um, and it's. It's an oddity that uh, that we have in Delaware. There's there's a lot. I mean, for being such a small state, it's difficult to make make those financial ends meet um, and not tax people. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what we. T I talked with Hal about this when we talked about his book. That you know the trade offs. There are you know the the regular person does 
make out. Like I, I'm a homeowner, so I'm, I make out on this like, like a bandit. Everybody does because there's no sales tax here. And so the fact of the matter is that you know everybody is getting something out of it or, or people who have a, I shouldn't say everybody because they don't. That's the problem. Yeah. The problem is you have to have sort of you have to have been you have to have bought into the franchise or have been enfranchised in some fashion. Some people have been actually actively disenfranchised from this, and I think that's the problem that people have really. Is yeah, I mean, some people do get a benefit from it, and I guess everybody sort of gets a benefit from the no sales tax in, in a sense, um, but not really. Um, so, you know, it's I think that's the problem people have with at least the, the corporate franchise. Mm-hmm is that the people who reap the benefits of that are already the people that have everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, there's a there's an imbalance of power. Yeah, so it balances the revenue stream coming into the treasury. Yeah. But the balance of power, it actually exacerbates an already a scale that somebody already has their thumb on or both mm-hmm. thumbs on or they're, they're they're sitting on it. So the people who are sitting on the scale are still are taking the 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 benefit of that of the of the thing that's explained as a balance between revenue streams, but ultimately the same people win. That's a problem I have with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think again, it's it's a, it's a difficult um, it's a difficult bear to wrestle because of the the benefit that that it means, you know, for people. But but I will say that um, I don't know if you're familiar with um, the patriotic millionaires. Sounds like something I would not like. I, I don't. Sounds... I'm not familiar. I'm not familiar with it. I'm. I'm interested to hear about it. I. I will warn you. Uh, it sounds like something I'm. I'm not going to like. But tell me what it is. Well, so so the they are a group of millionaires who believe that they should be taxed more at a higher rate. This is the. Uh, this is the guy from uh, Nebraska or what it, from Omaha, the big the Berkshire Hathaway guy. Him, oh uh, well, I'm not sure if he's one isn't of he them. One of them? I'm not sure. He he may be, but um, yeah, and conceptually he may be, but but I, there are a lot of you know, um, corp you know folks who've who've benefited from the the corporate structure who've said, look, it it doesn't make any sense yeah. to uh, to have a, a tax structure that that really, as you said, sort of continues to create this imbalance in power, and I think. Um, they they actually wrote a book. I want to say it was uh, put out in 2018. Um, I'll, I'll get you a copy. I'll okay, I do like. See, I'm, I'm I'm I don't hate it as much as I thought I would. Yeah, yeah. No, it's the name. I'll be honest. The, the name's name not good. You. They they should think about rebranding it. Yes. Because my first reaction is <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you, not great. Yeah. Now the reason I like it is because it highlights something that I think is incredibly important. Because usually when the Warren Buffetts of the world say. I should pay more tax. It's not fair. The rate of my tax is lower than, you know, my secretary he used to say. He's old. That's the words he uses. Um, it's important to note that some people say, well, just write a bigger check to the Treasury. It doesn't work that way. These things don't work on an individual basis. The system, systemically, the structure has to change. So what these what these folks are saying is that, like, yeah, I mean, I could send the Treasury 75% of what I've got. That doesn't help. That's not what I'm talking about. What we're talking about is leveraging the wealth and production of the nation into other means. So I do appreciate the way that if they're saying tax, they mean all of us, everyone. 
right. and so I like that message. But I, I don't like they have to rebrand. Because <laughs> right, this right. is something Carl could work on. Carl, if you right. could work on rebranding them, they have money already. You could probably get paid pretty good for it. Yeah, yeah. I think I think so. I think they find it uh, comical. I think to them it's sort of a, a joke to sort of grab that that patriotic uh, millionaire sort of um, term. But I, but I will say in you know conceptually one of the things that we've tried to do inside of my office is to look for opportunities to sort of help to create more balance. And um, recently we started, and, and it's still out there, we're looking for applications for the Aspire 529. What that is, is there are funds that are kicked off through the investments that we make. There's a small fee that gets set aside. And for years, that money was just sort of set aside. It's really meant for marketing purposes. And so we looked at it and said, what can we do that will be impactful and impactful to the least of us, you know, the individuals that don't have a family, uh, you know, historically, you know, I, I mentioned we lost everything as a kid. All of my possessions were on the lawn. Our home was auctioned off everything. And yet we had a grandmother and grandfather to sort of, you know, live with for a short period of time, help help us to rebuild those types of things um, and, and help to sort of welcome us into a community. Foster children don't have that wider network of family and um, and it's not their fault, you know, and, and I would say for most people who find themselves in very desperate times, it's typically not their fault, you know. Um, and so we, we developed the Aspire 529. When those fees get kicked off, they get set aside into an endowment. And every child who ages out of foster care who is going on to higher education, we want to help them to do that. So whether it's trade school, whether it's technical school, whether it's uh, college or university, um, these these are funds that will will help them to do that. And we're utilizing investment monies to, to do that. Um, and so we're sort of taking that system and trying to make it work in a way that um, that that truly benefits you know kids who don't have that that wider network. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think there any, I don't think anyone can um, can say anything bad about that program. Um, I'm my one suspicion is always like everything has to be means tested. Everything has to be for we have to find and this this doesn't go. I'll explain it like this. I have a kind of politics that's about like progressive public interest, all the public. There's another kind of liberal politics that's sort of like stakeholder based. Like who are the stakeholders? Who are the people, the, the, the pockets of people who are getting the health care money or the people who are actually benefiting from the corporate franchise? Stakeholders. What do they want and how can we craft a program, whether it's you know, whether it's an education, whether it's uh, a thing you're doing at the Treasury, whether whatever it is, whether it's some, some other legislation that they want to do. How can we figure out to do the absolute least for the people who are in the most despair and not affect our stakeholders? I don't like that politics. I understand why it's happening, and I'm certainly glad that, that adults that age out of the foster care system, I don't know what year you, I don't know if you're 18 or 16, whatever, however old you are when you do that, that there's a chunk of money that says you can go do this, do whatever you want. You can go to trade school, be a mechanic, go be, go to university, be a historian, whatever, whatever you want. I love that. 
But again, I, I, I'm, I always, and not to say a bad thing about it, but just to, to sort of put that idea, that's a good idea, against sort of where I'm coming from that, you know, it's just another example of, you know, if we put our mind to it, we actually could do this stuff. But we, we, we create such a narrow lane in which we allow ourselves to do it that I think it's, it's, just, it's just rough sometimes to hear, you know, that, uh, that that's what we have to do to get some of this stuff done. Yeah. And so I, that's how I frame it. I yeah, say, yeah. You know. Well, and I will say that I do operate within a very narrow, you know, capability. Yeah. Um, and some of that is, is based on the office itself. I mean, this is something that was never done before. Yeah. Um, and those are, those are some of the challenges too. And yet I think at the same time, like, you know, you point to individuals that we were, you know, you were covering before, you know, you, you point to other elected officials yep. and you go, well, that's actually good that we have a narrow framework for them to operate within. I, you must have read my mind. Yeah. Because here's what, because that's exactly right. I, I think about that all the time. And one of the things that Bill and I talked about when we took that deep dive into the inner workings of the Office of Auditor of Accounts was that on one hand, elected officials that go into government even at the federal level where the president gets to select all of the secretaries, even there, you know, you have to work within, if you want to do something big, if you have a big idea, you want to do something new that nobody did before, uh, whatever it is, you have to convince people, number one, that it's a good thing to do because you're working within a, a, a system. This is why I make so many system, systemic yeah, yeah. critiques, you know? Yep, yep. But you're working within a system, you have to do that. Now, the problem the officer of auditor of accounts, as far as I'm concerned, was that she was not equipped to make those arguments. And, and moreover, the interest she was serving about doing it outside of her lane was a egotistical interest, a political interest. If you were trying to make those arguments in the public interest, that's a different story to me. Now, Again, there's there's there are there's statutory rules. There are rule. I mean, there's rules you just have to follow, and but you know, there is a there is a. I mean, you can go in to um, to state agencies, and I think do more with it than some people do. Now, whether it's good or bad, how you do it, you know, it's a political thing. I mean, you're an elected official. Right. Right. So, I mean, you have to go out and say, you should vote for me, not this uh, Greg Coverdale guy. And so I read your stuff and his stuff. It's both just sort of like you can't say too much because you can't do too much. But if it's an elected position, you gotta set, you got to have, an, you have to have an agenda. I mean, it's not necessarily true. The, gov the governor doesn't have an agenda. He has no priorities. So I guess maybe you can just go in and be like, I'm going to run the agency. Which, again, I, I, I don't know if that's bad. Right. It's certainly better than... As you said, there are some people that are not up to that. So <laughs> that's something well, good. And, and I think in a way, like, you know, you, you sort of touched on um, some of the amazing people that happen that, you know, that sort of happen to do the work behind the scenes. And they're absolutely dedicated servants. And they don't. Um, so so Jane is a great example. I think she does a phenomenal job. Um, and the same is true inside of my office. I have a lot of individuals who... Um, who are amazing and and they've decided to work in in state government um for less than they would in the private sector 
um, and and for a variety of reasons. You know, there are certain trade-offs that each and every individual has to sort of, you know, come to terms with. But ultimately, what it comes down to is amazing work product. I, I, I mean, we've sort of cultivated this team that um, that I want to see continue to succeed and do better and better. And um, and so along the way, if we're able to, you know, continue to I, not just it, like I, I think in some ways there was an attempt to expand the office, um, you know, from from different individuals. But but I think ultimately ensure that we continue to do good work and, and help people in our communities like, you know, House Bill 205, Delaware earns getting that passed. You for me, I, I started almost from day one when I walked into office doing the research and trying to get on top of developing a publicly offered retirement fund for all individuals. And um, in framing it, that frame had to change based on the person I was talking with. And I had to go, you know, across the entire office, 28 different individuals and get them all on board and committed to uh, pursuing this. And it, it took us that long to get it done. Yeah. I mean, as I said, that's a way to do it. <laughs> you know, you get people's buy-in, you explain to them what's good about it. I mean, I think we've, we have talked in here a lot, not just because of the McGinnis case, but also we've had um, other candidates who have had state jobs and just ask them, you know, about it. Because, yeah, I mean, I think I think everybody is, is professional. Everybody has some level of competence. I, I was very reassured um, over the time that I've seen these people talk about what they do. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, 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 don't, I think you mentioned it. The pay isn't great. You know, we don't really focus on what we, we try to do as little as possible. I think there's been has there been cuts to the pension? Is that why they're doing the funded the funded retirement thing? Is that is that sort of like a a public four hundred one case thing? Is that what we're talking about? So yeah, so essentially, what uh, the, again? This sort of started before the pandemic, yeah. but um, my sort of research into how to get it done and and what other legislation looked like and things like that, but. The pandemic really highlighted the, I mean, you know, the challenge for households that are and were showing up to work on the front lines every day, exposing themselves to potential uh, life-threatening virus, and uh, were considered essential. And and again, they were. They they were our grocery baggers, our you know, um, our DoorDash, our you know, folks that made sure that that our healthcare workers, even our you know, nurses, aides, and people like that who are coming into the home to, to help care for um, some of our, our uh, folks in the disabled community and, and in the um, um, elder, you know, sort of elder care community. Um, a lot of those individuals do not have a 401k that's offered through their employer. And it really was sort of underscored how wildly uh, different that that sort of disparity is um, those folks were expected to, to show up to work expose themselves and didn't have anything to fall back on when they became ill and and had to stay home the cares act allowed individuals to tap into their 401k up to a hundred thousand dollars 
if they had some type of uh, uh, financial impact from the pandemic. And again, these are individuals, by and large, who did not have something like that, couldn't tap into it, and yet were on the front lines and and so uh, uh, severely impacted. So it was sort of the precipitous behind, let's get this done. Yeah. Okay. Last question. Yeah. Here we go. Wrap her up. <laughs> Take right into the right into the the end of it. So I think it's fair to say, and uh, Carl's also our historian, our, our local historian, check here. And in recent years, um, the position of treasurer, there have been uh, treasurers of Delaware who have gone on to much higher office. Um, our governor, who you know, he's not going to blame me for anything I say. He knows. <laughs> Look, you think he knows he does something? He knows he doesn't have an agenda. He knows that. Um, he was a treasurer. Uh, our our uh, our COVID-riddled senior senator was a treasurer. I believe Carper was a treasurer. Carper, mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's, I mean, what are you, I mean, are we thinking, thinking also, U.S. Senate for you? I don't think Carney was... Treasurer, Jack, I think he was Jack director Markell. of finance. Director of finance. He was under yeah. Carper. Okay. Markell was... Markel was the treasurer. Yeah. He was the director of... See, this is why with the finance and the OMB and the treasury <laughs> and the accounting, it's all, it's all you know, yes. it's, it's very esoteric. <laughs> that being said, people from the financial side of the, of the house mm-hmm. um, generally have some sort of uh, ambition a little further where maybe you can spread your wings and do some of the stuff maybe you can't do in your narrow lane. What would that be if you had something, if you could do something? If you could say, you know, I, I'm sort of... You know, I'm here just to basically try to do what I can within the parameters of the Treasury, which mm. you explained perfectly. Um, but where can you go to um, to do maybe something outside of that lane that you would like to do? I mean, it just could be aspirational. It doesn't be like, I'm going to do this thing. It would be an astronaut kind of a thing. I right? mean, it could be, or it could be like a like an elected office. Like, uh-huh. like you know, is there is there a... Is there something you're looking at to be like, you know, I could I think I could do this and make more of an impact about the stuff I want to do? Well, I certainly think that the the office of uh, Treasury is um, has a narrow scope, but there's so much that we have been able to do. And um, and I, I do have an amazing team. And um, so I love it. I, I, I absolutely love it. It's probably a bad it. question since you're running, actually currently running yeah, for your next yeah. term. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's okay, a terrible that's fair. question. That's no, fair. But, that's fair. <laughs> fair point. Hey, look. Like, I'll that's just a fair say, point. I'm, I am young and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not, uh, I think Carper was 28 when he was elected uh, to, to Treasury. I was 38, so I'm older than he was. Um, but, you know, there's there's always potential. I, I, never, um, I never say, uh, you know, that I that I have it all figured out and, or mapped out, but I but I am certainly planning to run and would love to continue to do this job for the next four years. Yeah. Yeah, and that that would be my sort of the thing I would say. Just going back to, you know, what we were talking about, state agencies. Um, you know, sometimes when they're run properly, you don't really don't really see much of them. That's fine, actually, <laughs> because I've seen more than enough over the last couple of months uh, to, 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 you don't want to take a big, you know, it's not somewhere where you're going to, you know, just find, pick somebody out of obscurity and be like, you go run it. Uh, when somebody's uh, a competent uh, bureaucrat and they're running an agency in a thoughtful, competent way, uh, 
I think that's you just stick with that. Uh, <laughs> as you said, there's not a lot of while while I may disagree with the fact that you know it's an elected position that still doesn't have uh, a lot of wiggle room in it. Um, it's still important that um, I think we reelect uh, Colleen for treasurer. Um, and just you know, in four years, I'll re-ask my question. Yeah. And then I'll say, what are you doing in four years? You tell me then. Yeah, yeah. Well, and th- and thank you. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, and, and hopefully as treasurer, I still get a little time every now and then to get some surfing in. So it's one of those things uh, where... I see now. You, 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 met, nurse, you met Nurse Susan downstairs. She finally... She, she, she moved here from the Eastern Shore. So she's from oh, the nice. beach. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things... And again... <laughs> She held on to that surfboard and held it and held it and held it. Oh, no. And she says, Wilmington is landlocked. And I said, you know, if the beach is right there. She's like, it's not the same thing. So, yeah, I mean, if, 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 uh, if you're, if you're going to, if you're going to go out surfing, give us a ring because I'm not going, but Susan could go. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Every, every morning when I'm driving over the bridge, the Indian River Bridge, I'm looking down at the surfers in the water. Um, at like 6 a.m., 5.30 a.m., and jealous yeah. that uh, that I'm not. So every now and then I do stop. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Folks, um, you know how to hit us up. On Twitter, it's at Highlands Bunker. On Patreon, it's patreon.com slash the Highlands Bunker. Um, we, have, we have a couple cool things coming up. Um, our 200th episode is coming up. That will be fun. Um, I have another author who uh, wrote about the Wilmington jazz scene in the 50s right around the time of Clifford Brown so that could be cool and uh, you know we'll, we'll give you a spattering of, uh, of local election and campaign and political news as well as we always do uh, and until then left is best <laughs> <laughs>